This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In today's lecture, I will turn to the political or institutional structures of the communes as a whole and how they were transformed from below by lay people who organized themselves using the forms of the penitent communities and eventually overthrew the older aristocratic regimes of the original city republics. This brought a major transformation of communal governance in the mid-1200s, which is usually referred to as the revolutions of the popolo. Popolo here means the common people as opposed to the nobility and aristocracy. Uh, this excluded, however, the marginal, most day laborers, and was intended, uh, but it included well over half the adult male population. But first, we need to understand what happened in the late 1100s and early 1200s after the Italian cities finally shook off German imperial control that existed de jure in the north of Italy since the Carolingians in the 800s. And they needed to do this in order to create the original communes. As religious organizations in themselves, the communes remain, my work accepted, largely unexplored. Scholars prefer to study them almost exclusively as the earliest examples of non-imperially governed lay states in Italy. The government forms of the communes underwent great changes over time, and that affected their religious texture as well. Every commune's history was unique, but all shared similar stages of political development. That allows me to do something I hate to do, I'm a splitter, not a joiner. It allows me to make generalizations. When cities ended imperial rule, Republican but oligarchic regimes arose. This happened in the early 1100s. At Bologna, for example, the government by imperial counts ceased in the years 1113 to 1114. The pol Republican political structures that replaced the imperial government were in, in discontinuity with it. They are new creations in themselves. Commonly, two or more consuls, C-O-N-S-U-L-S, presided over a city administration in which a small group of wealthy merchants and judges dominated the political life through a number of assemblies or councils. The German monarchs did not formally acknowledge the city's de facto independence or legitimacy until the Peace of Costanza, or Constance, in 1183, and then only grudgingly. Rampant factionalism eventually forced the cities to experiment with a single executive called a potesta, usually a foreigner chosen for a short time of six months to a year. Bologna chose its first potesta in 1148 and 47 and made the system permanent in 1175. The Podesta served as the single city manager in the hope that his lack of local connections, as I said, they were usually foreigners, would isolate him from factionalism and favoritism. Popular participation in the government remained very restricted until the revolutions of the Popolo, which occurred, as I said, in the mid-1200s. These brought a gradual expansion of participation through the incorporation of various civic corporations into the government. North Italians, as you now know, had long formed such corporations for military and economic purposes, as well as originally religious purposes. As a group, these corporations formed the Popolo itself, with which its, with its own assemblies took a place beside the city's older organs of government. At Bologna, the corporations of the Popolo elected a captain of the people to head them for the first time in 1223. There, as elsewhere, this official took a place beside the Podesta as a kind of second executive. Like the commune itself, the corporations of the Popolo had little or no precedent in earlier political structures. They really are revolutionary. By the 1240s, with the German imperial control of Italy as a thing of the past, distant past, the secular 
city governments had developed a more distinct identity, and bishops, who often functioned as municipal rectors under the emperors, began to lose their direct role in communal governance. The spheres of jurisdiction were becoming separate. In the 1220s, the Veronese developed, uh, stopped enforcing summonses to the Episcopal court, though they continued to respect clerical exemptions by, by sending cases of clerical truce-breaking to the bishop. After mid-century, at least in legal matters, the distinction between the civil administration and church administration became ever more clear and explicit everywhere. But I'll warn you ahead of time, this did not mean a secularization of the civic government. In 1250, Bologna prohibited appeal to the bishop's court in secular matters, but the commune continued to compel clerics summoned to the Episcopal court for ecclesiastical matters. Bologna's actions defined the different court spheres of authority. They did not reduce episcopal power per se. In theory, the communes vigorously rejected the ecclesiastical claim that criminal clerics were subject only to church courts. In practice, bishops yielded authority over such cases to the commune and worked out agreements. At Padua, beautiful city, that's the Prato della Valle, at, at Padua, the bishop decreed to, agreed to defrock criminal clerics and hand them over. Bishop of Tadiano of, of Bologna accommodated his city in the matter and handed over weapon-bearing clerics for civil trial. He gave permission to the Podestas men to enter convents and churches to arrest offending clergy. Reciprocally, the late 13th century communes enacted legislation favoring the liberties of the church, promised to protect church property, and helped by disciplining and executing heretics. Heavenly patrons replaced the emperor as the overlords of the cities. Uh, at Verona, over the west portal of his great Romanesque church, the city's patron, San Zeno, confers legitimacy and independence on his city. This is a political theology carved in stone. I was asked what kind of sources I use, and one of the things I said was material culture. This is an example. The bishop saint holds his pastoral staff and blesses the communal militia. Cavalry stand at his left and foot soldiers at his right. The latter, the foot soldiers, hold the banner of the commune they have received from Zeno. An inscription below reads, the bishop, with sincere heart, grants to his people a standard worthy of defense. This sculpture commemorates nothing less than the end of imperial rule and the creation of the Veronese commune in the middle 1100s, and it is already the people, the foot soldiers, not the old knightly aristocracy with its imperial connections to whom Zeno gives his banner and authority. The lord of the commune is its heavenly patron, not the earthly emperor. Other new communes resurrected forgotten bishop saints, revived or invented cults from the distant past. These cults underwent a political transformation. At Bologna, the cult of the city's two earliest bishops, Saints Zama and Justinian, dates to the early communal period, but neither Zama nor Justinian had obvious links to the new communal regime. These links had to be invented. When they were, they focused on another saint who soon eclipsed both Zama and Justinian, San Patronio. He is by far the best studied example of this phenomenon. The rise of the early communes began a sacralization of municipal ethos and of municipal space. Early communal assemblies met in the Duomo, the cathedral, or in other city churches. At Florence, before the construction of the civic palazzo began in 1298, the priors met before the altars of the various saints and city churches according to a rotation. Even after the commune had its own palazzo, the tradition of a religiously consecrated meeting space continued. The fathers dedicated communal altars in the new civic buildings. At Ferrara, 
where city officials still met in the Duomo, they carved the city statutes of 1173 into the church's south wall facing the main piazza. I have to say something about this. If you go to Ferrara today, you have to go to a little shop attached to the city wall where they sell sporting clothing and sporting goods. And I went there with my photographer and had them move the racks of, uh, ja of sports jackets away from the wall. And we crawled on the floor where there's an opening in uh, the wainscoting so you can see the original communes, communal statutes carved into marble and set in the side of the cathedral. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> Not for a hundred years did these carvings of the civic laws into the cathedral fabric become obsolete. Market construction finally covered them, as I said, in the late 1280s. Other cities did not follow Ferrara's example, but many inserted municipal units of measure into the wall of a major church. Communal uh, governors appropriated a space for themselves within the Duomo. At Brescia, the commune elected, erected a good and beautiful bench for its leaders between the nave columns of San Pietro and arranged a clean and spacious area around it for city assemblies. Even after civic bodies had moved to their own palazzi, the sacristies of the Duomo and larger churches remained a favorite place to deposit and keep safe municipal records. Such embellishments made a doctrinal statement. Cities placed images over their gates to proclaim communal orthodoxy and patronage. I'm going to quote from the Statutes of Milan, quote, let images be placed over the five major gates of the city in honor of the Blessed Virgin, St. Michael, and St. Christopher, St. Peter, and the Blessed Martyrs Felix and Fortunatus, and let this be completed between Easter and the 1st of August. Oh, pardon me, that, that's actually, the picture is, uh, is Milan. Uh, the, uh, that is uh, an order of the Commune of Vicenza in 1262. This is a visible declaration of orthodoxy after the expulsion of the impious and heretical tyranny of the da Romano family. Attitude towards cultic images of the saints would in fact be a litmus test of both religious and civic orthodoxy. The notary, Ugonetto di Molari, was walking one day with two acquaintances. He suggested that they drop into a church and pray there before the images of the saints. Such images were made, quote, more for worldly use than devotion, said one of his friends. They certainly were worldly in the sense of communal and civic, but they were holy objects of devotion as well. The inquisitor who took down Ugonetto's words concerning the, these men as heretics under influence perhaps of some Waldensian preacher. On the other hand, I would suggest, perhaps they were just from another city. Honoring images of the saints proved Catholic and communal identity. And after all, why would you, why would you root for Stanford if you're a graduate of Berkeley? Like the Duomo, municipal chapels uh, that might be called neighborhood proto-parish churches providing, provided tempting space for profane meetings detainments, storage, and secular business. As in the case of the Duomo, the heightened religious sensibilities of the 13th century communes demanded protection for this very holy place. Concern for the purity of the communal chapel seems, if anything, greater than for the cathedral. At Bologna, three years after the Palazzo uh, Chapel's completion, the commune forbade all secular business there, especially mentioning detention of prisoners. By the way, it's in the same building with the jail. The local cappella was not only a church here, it was a sacred government building. Bologna enlisted merchants to say mass at the communal chapel. Dominican, Franciscan, Augustinian, and Sakati friars served on a rotation for mass each week. The city provided the priests with 24 loaves of bread a week as mass alms, stipends, to be baked at a, bread, at a bakery of the friars choosing. Good bread makes good pastors. The Bolognese treasurer, Masarius, had responsibility for equipping the city chapel. He maintained the votive lamp, 
A Scotchan city statute shows the style of lamp that the fathers preferred, and the anticipated cost was a princely five pounds Bolognese. They provided the two mass candles and on solemnities incense for the divine offices. Each February on the Feast of the Purification, the treasurer provided the podesta with three pounds of wax for chapel use and checked to see that the altar linens had been washed. Francis would be happy. Mass hosts provided, vestments furnished, and palms procured for Palm Sunday. By 1288, the chapel was so well supplied with vestments, altar books, cloths, and fine cha silver chalices that the fathers enacted special measures to provide security. Nor did they ignore the ministry of the word. The year the city chapel opened, the city arranged for a preacher to edify the public there at least once a month at city expense. The new Republican armies were consecrated by sacred rites. The communes, bourgeois, and their ethos preserved the aristocratic rituals of knighthood, but transformed the ceremonies to conform to Republican sensibilities. Each city created its own knights, usually on Pentecost Sunday, the Sunday of the Knights, Pasqua Militium. Nevertheless, in cities under special patronage of the Virgin, such as Siena, the Assumption was the favorite date for knighting. The bishop, as pastor of the city, presided at the ceremony. Only on the most exceptional, I would say irregular occasions, did, did Italians have recourse to a mere, mere layman, however noble, to knight a citizen of their republics. And I couldn't find a picture of a knighting, but here we see, this is September the 3rd, 1260, a date I celebrate every year, and you'll see the Sienese the running down the Florentines, and as Dante said at the Battle of Montiaperte, causing the Arno to run red with Florentine blood. Such an event occurred on, at Forlì on All Saints Day, 1285. This is the unusual one, when Count Alberto de Gorizia uh, knighted two citizens in the field. Raimondo, the patriarch of Aquileia, who had been asked originally, had refused to preside because one candidate was under excommunication for homicide. So this is an irregular situation. Servants of the city participated in its sacred character. Uh, the lay theologian, Albertano of Brescia, whom I've mentioned before, spoke of city lawyers as the priests of the commune. They purified the mouths of citizens with the salt of justice, he said, just as the church's priests did that of those of neophytes with the blessed salt at baptism. God's judgment was invoked in the communal courts. Even after its prohibition by the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, the communes continued to practice trial by battle inviting divine intervention into their legal processes. In a ritual book, which once belonged to the Benedictine nuns of San Alessandro at Parma, the mass and rituals for trial by battle appear pasted into the flyleaf. The paste-in is 13th century and well used. In fact, it's dirty. Litigants heard the mass of the Trinity and the litany of the saints. They confessed, received communion of blessed bread, since they're about to kill each other. Their shields and weapons were anointed in the sign of the cross with the oil of the sick, as were the combatants' heads and hands. They're gonna get sick in this battle, I think. As in battle between cities, let God and the saints defend the right. At no time were the communes secular in the modern sense, but before the rise of the popolo, I alluded to this in question time yesterday, Italian city statutes are oddly lacking in religious references in the early period. The early commune at Ferrara sanctified its city statutes by carving them into the wall of the cathedral, but those laws lacked any religious content, at least explicitly. The same was true elsewhere. At Pisa, the only overtly religious passage in the statutes of 1162 comes in the consul's oath, where the different officers swear to protect the honor of the mother church and other religious institutions. The 1162 statutes are fragments, but those of 1233, for which we have more complete texts, are equally lacking in religious references. God intrudes into the early 13th century statutes of Treviso 
only in the requirement that city officials take their oaths on the Gospels. The saints appear only in use of their feasts for dating. Milan's earliest extant statutes are wholly non-religious, tithes being the only ecclesiastical matter mentioned. But religion, as I have been saying, was not alien to the early communes, only to their statutes. They were founded within the Episcopal Curia, they met in sacred spaces, they replaced the emperor with the new civic patron saint. The fathers felt no need to proclaim their faith when legislating on roads, drains, taxes, and court procedure. It was the rise of the popolo and the popolo communes that brought a sea change in legal rhetoric. This was the age when the cities built their palazzi and established civil courts and administration constantly distinct, consciously distinct from the bishop and the church. As communes developed a more purely lay government and housed it in new communal palazzi, they steeped the city's secular legislation more and more in heavily religious language and imagery. Notice that they are sacralizing the commune down to its legal core. This was also the age of politically loaded hagiography, like the Vita of San Patronio in Bologna. For the first time, by the way, he's presented as the enemy of imperial expansion and power into the city of Bologna, and it's anachronistically its university. This was also the, uh, for the first time, cities explicitly legislated on moral and religious life. There was a question about this yesterday. The communes now made large-scale investments in city churches and communal chapels besides the cathedral. By the late communal period, city statutes opened with endless invocations of the saints, and their opening enactment, the Podestas Oath, always commits him to defend the Orthodox Church and suppress heresy. The statutory language of the popular communes was not pious rhetoric. Religious identity and republicanism went hand in hand. The commune's religious base became visible whenever its republican governance was endangered. God and the saints most dominated a city laws, city laws when the city itself was fighting to throw off imperial control or resist local aristocratic tyranny. The prologue of Vicenza's 1264 statutes expresses that commune's fundamental theology with bracing clarity. The statutes open with the podestarial oath of Rolando de Inglesi of Padua, who took office that year on the feast of St. Michael the Archangel, the anniversary of the expulsion of the de Romano aristocrat tyrants. The oath outlined God's rule over the angelic choirs, the eight cosmic spheres, the Earth's four climatic zones. It recalls his creation of animals and how he gave them instinct as their guide. Finally, it celebrates God's creation of humanity, which shares existence with stones, life with plants, sensation with beasts, understanding with angels. Sounds like a little bit of Thomistic Aristotelianism here. God did not leave humanity without a guide. The human race from the beginning lived in cities, villages, and communes, or towns, and God established justice in the provinces by dukes, marquises, and counts, and in the cities by podestas, who promoted the good and repressed the wicked. Can you imagine a member of the Supreme Court making an oath like this today? It is a majestic mapping of creation with the commune as God's highest creation. Notice, higher and later in time than the monarchy. Uh, implicitly an advance on the old nobility of the provinces. Country bumpkins, those aristocrats. Markedly absent is any reference to the old empire. As Podesta, Rolando says, he will promulgate statutes to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Virgin Mary, Saints Felix and Fortunatus, whose bodies, he notes, lie in the city of Vicenza, and Saint Michael, on whose feast the city of Vicenza was recently liberated from the bloody oppression and rule of the perfidious imperial agents Enzolino and his family. The authority of the popular commune came from heaven and lived in communion with it. The religious concerns of the popular communal laws contrast markedly with those from before 1250. 
Late 13th century communes legislated on religious matters that earlier would have been left to the mother church herself. Bologna took upon itself to supervise the admission of young people to religious life and to protect parental rights. Parents' permission was required before religious vows by girls under 12 or boys under 14, just as stipulated in Canada. Cities now regularly provided protection and financial support for hospitals, leprosaria, religious houses, some of which, like the house of Gerardo Signorelli's Apostolici at Parma, even lacked official ecclesiastical approbation. The funds provided were large enough to occasion anxiety about fraud. At Bologna on 3 June 1257, the city forbade correctors of city statutes to introduce new grants to charitable institutions. They were becoming just too burdensome. Elsewhere, the trend towards ever larger religious expenditures and increased legislation on sacred and moral matters continued to the end of the communal period. The union of church and city, which marked the early communes, persisted in new forms and remained reciprocal. On the ecclesiastical side, the mother church helped fund the non-religious needs of the city. At Siena and Parma, the bishop and clergy paid for paving the city streets. Everywhere, the communes made churches old responsibility for miserable persons their own. At Parma, Bologna, and Reggio, for example, the city established legal and special courts to protect the poor, widows, orphans, and religious. One senses that the clerical lay condominium still existed into the, uh, extended to the fabric of the whole city and to all of its residents. The cities legislated as never before on morality, something I was asked about yesterday. At Ravenna, the Podesta explicitly censored loans usurious according to church teaching. Virtually every popular commune issued laws against blasphemy, particularly the defaming of the patron saint of the city. Ferrara and Vicenza dunked blasphemers into a tub in the piazza in full view of everybody. Parma merely, merely whipped them across town. Siena cut out the offending tongues. Bologna, in a show of chivalry, singled out for that punishment any man who slandered the Virgin Mary or a female saint. Punishable moral offenses multiplied throughout, uh, through, during the period of the popular communes, coming to include gambling, especially near city church steps, sexual infractions, cross-dressing, etc. In contrast, the only moral issue regularly addressed in the pre-1250 statutes was prostitution, mostly by ad hoc expulsions on the occasion of religious festivals. The legislation of the popular communes against prostitution was on a wholly different scale. Their anti-prostitution statutes protected the sacred spaces of the city, the city center, the cathedral complex, the piazzas in front of churches, and the neighborhoods of monasteries and convents. These were perpetual laws, not ad hoc evictions. But even the popular regimes made no attempt to outlaw prostitution itself. Their legislation did not police morals directly, rather it protected the dignity of the city's holy places and shrines. Vice in such places was sacrilege, offensive not only to God, but to the city as a religious organism. Up to this point, I've spoken to the communes generally. I will now focus more narrowly on the developed 13th century Republican regimes themselves, the popular communes. The popular communes provide a glimpse into the grassroots or civic life in a way that the less documented earlier communes cannot. The revolutions of the Popolo occurred in the period from 1215 to 1245, after approximately 50 years of political instability. I do not intend to trace the political and economic events that led to these revolutions since others, like Hyde, whom you've read, have treated them extensively. I will focus on one particular aspect of these new regimes, their heightened religious identity. The Popolo brought more men into communal government, although the citizenship was exercised in a corporate, not individualistic manner. The institutions of the new regimes rendered the communes more clearly distinct from the bishopric. Bishops did not become podestas after the rise of the popolo, as they did before. The earliest popular regime was at Milan, where an association called the Creenza de Sant'Ambrogio appeared alongside the older communal organs in 1198. City statutes finally recognized the Credenza's political dominance in 1216. 
And having a single organ for popular participation, Milan was unique. Nevertheless, the credenza exhibits similarity to the typical smaller corporations that made up the popolo of the cities elsewhere. In all cases, there are strong organizational and devotional similarities to the religious confraternities of the last lecture, although the credenza, at least, did not evolve directly out of earlier religious associations, in that it is virtually unique. The usual vehicles for popular revolution were small neighborhood, I was asked about that yesterday, or craft associations. After claiming political space by military uprisings, these organizations collectively organized to form a larger corporation, the Popolo itself. Some of these corporations had an overtly religious quality. Craft guilds, for example, were commonly pious associations in origin. At Ferrara, early 12th century records of the Shoemakers Guild show that it originated as a purely religious association and only later became a craft guild, and then later a corporation of the Popolo but it retained its devotional marks of origin, down to the core. By 1233 at Padua, the popolo consisted of fratalier, the local word for such societies based on craft. These probably had a religious origin similar to the Shoemakers Guild in Ferrara. At Parma, as in most cities, the most important organs of the popolo were the neighborhood militia associations called Vicinia, Rua, or Contrada, all three meaning neighborhood, the last Contrada, plural Contrade, commonly used everywhere. Uh, those who have been to Siena probably run into this word. The Fratalier elected their council, C-O-N-S-U-L-S, in the neighborhood chapel, Ecclesia and they met there at the ringing of the church bell. At Cremona, parishes themselves, parochiae, formed the popolo. They were grouped into quarter associations and each owed a quota of soldiers to the city. Notice the link even for parish associations to military service. Of the 57 capelle of Caramona, the largest, San Michele in Porta San Lorenzo, which was itself divided into districts, owed 759 soldiers, while smaller capelle or chapels like San Martino in Porta Peruzzi, Porta Peruzzi, owed as few as 10. The total soldiers owed by the four quarters was 5,826. If Cremona, people asked about statistics, here they come. If Cremona had something like 25,000 people, this was a large percentage of the adult male population, perhaps over half. Verona assessed local capelle for units of the militia in the same way. Such grassroots organizations of the popolo seem voluntary and local. This makes sense of the dictum of the theorist of communal polity, Albertano of Brescia, who wrote that nothing could be more absurd than a free city whose government was feared rather than loved. It could be loved because it was made up, and this will be my theme from now on, of neighbors. Sadly, neither of these cities has preserved documents revealing the internal organization of these neighborhood societies. Bologna is, has the best documented neighborhood society. These were the backbone of the popolo. The backbone of the popolo was the Società delle Armi, uh, under the popular regime, these societies, along with the craft guilds of Bologna, elected the city officials and provided the grassroots political organization. They formed units of the militia. The societies of arms were in origin temporary and probably evolved to provide police functions. Evidence from the late communal period shows that similar associations existed not only at Cremona, but also at Florence, Mantua, Brescia, Biela near Vercelli, and other places. In those cities, unfortunately, evidence on the neighborhood societies dates after 1300, after they become permanent mandatory organizations, now more closely controlled by the centralized city administration. Bolognese records show the societies in their earliest incarnation and to some extent reveal their original organization and life. While every popolo was unique, the Bologna Corporation seems typical. I'm gonna be willing to generalize. 
when founded, the societies of the Bolognese Popolo found their forms of organization ready to hand. The rhetorician whom I've mentioned, Buoncompagno of Signi, probably during his first year of teaching at Bologna, 1194, drafted a set of model statutes for a societa and included it in his famous Cedrus. He noted that these societies were multiplying in Italy and characterized them as private and usually religious in character, like the earlier penitent associations. That early quasi-religious groups might form a part of government is not wholly surprising. Later religious associations also received such rules. At Bologna, again, the flagellant confraternities became equals of the Adami and the Arti and came to be incorporated into the Popolo government. Unfortunately, none of the Bologna statutes show us a society in formation. We can, however, observe citizens in mid-century using Boncampagno's forms, modeled on the earlier penitential associations, to organize themselves as members of the Popolo corporations, uh, as members of the Popolo corporations had the generation before. On 20 September 1258, a group of 44 Bolognese, including the priest of San Cristoforo in Porta Saragoza, uh, created the Società di Santa Eustachio. It was a business corporation to manage some vineyards outside the city walls. A business corporation. The group approved and inducted new members in the chapel of San Cristoforo before the group's own altar, that of St. Eustace. That altar was also their usual place of meeting on the feast of their patron. The society elected as leaders eight ministers. These received an annual compensation of 10 shillings Bolognese. Given its worldly purpose, the group's statutes come as something of a shock to modern readers. This commercial entity is structurally and devotionally identical to the early penitent confraternities. It's borrowed its forms from them. Its statutes first provided for the devotion to the patron saint. The treasurer, Masarius, was to assure that an oil lamp burned perpetually before the patronal altar. He procured two large wax candles that burned during the masses of the society. At the Vigil Mass of St. Eustace, each member personally presented a candle to be valued at at least 18 pence Bolognese to the patron, and failure to do so resulted in expulsion from the society and loss of revenue in this case. The society met each month on the last Sunday for a votive Mass of St. Eustace, for which the statutes provided a six pence Bolognese stipend to the priest hired to chant the service. The mass ended with a benedizione, that is a loaf of fine white bread, which was blessed and shared by the members as a non-sacramental communion. After the service, the members met to conduct society business, if there was any. The major social affair of the year was the annual banquet party in honor of St. Eustace. The statutes appropriated a sum of five shil 15 shillings Bolognese, which paid for the dinner and allowed the priest of the chapel to hire a suitable choir to chant the solemn mass that preceded it. A smaller dinner was held in the fall in preparation for the annual candle offering. The society members were obliged to say five paters and aves, aves daily for the honor of the blessed martyr St. Eustace. One might easily mistake this vineyard society for a religious confraternity, and that would not be wholly mistaken. It would be a mistake to see it as merely a business corporation with some pious trappings. In the Society of St. Eustace, sacred and worldly elements formed a seamless whole, and they did so from its very foundation. The societies of the Popolo should be understood in the same way. The statutes of the Bolognese Societa delle Armi present the same merging of secular purpose, military police functions, with religious forms. Their organization is identical to that of the later vineyard society and earlier penitent associations. The founders used religious forms ready to hand. For only one society, the Lombardi, does the group's origin itself explain its religious character. The Lombards, were localized in the university district toward Porta Ravenna and limited to those of North Italian family origin. The society was in origin a true religious confraternity formed by the students of the university for their spiritual needs. All other societies of the Bolognese Popolo were created for military, political, or craft purposes and were voluntary, local, and temporary. Their use of religious forms of organization 
uh, though through which a much increased percentage of the adult male population found a role in city government, reflects the popolo's understanding of itself. In the period of these societies' foundation, the early 1200s, the communes were cultivating their ever more pronounced religious ethos. The communes sacralized their offices and functions as these became distinct from the mother church. New patron saints gave a legitimacy as the cities broke away from the authority of the empire. The society's mass political base is suggestive. The popular communes were not merely a new political order. Rather, they are a recognition of the city as a new organism permeated with a religious flavor from the ground up. The Bolognese societies were grassroots organizations. Analysis of the Bologna matricula for 1274 shows approximately 7,025 men enrolled in the Societa delle Armi. In 1310, the figure was 8,032. Bologna's population in 1290 we estimate to be about 50,000. If we cut that figure in half and so exclude women, we have 25,000. Eliminating roughly half as foreign students and minor children leaves an adult male population of perhaps 12,000. Dividing this by the average matricula figure yields 60% of adult males as society members. This may be a bit high since a man could belong to more than one society, but membership of over 50% is not at all unlikely. The suggestion of one expert that one-third of the Bolognese citizens held some city office in a given year is then reasonable. They held such office by membership in their society. That is, they were, were, that is, by their simultaneously religious and civic organizations. This does not mean, of course, they were fully democratic in the modern sense, although I'd be surprised to find any place in the world where something like 30% of the adult male population holds government office. Uh, certainly, some members counted more than others, and the less wealthy certainly had less leisure for political involvement. Nevertheless, Albertano of Brescia, the 13th century late theologian, considered these associations the backbones of what he called the, civilian, the citizen's liberty. Like that of St. Eustace, each society of the Bolognese Popolo met for mass in a church of the district from which it drew its members, the Quartieri, who met near Santa Brogio, even had benches installed there for the members. The group's standard bearer, as military leader of the society, called out and rallied the members in front of the city chapel and less commonly at the neighborhood cross. Chanting a mass preceded business meetings, elections, and discussion of whatever, quote, touched the honor of the society and of our beloved city of Bologna, including financial reports. A few societies that join, also joined mass with the distribution of poor alms, but that does not seem universal. Mass alone was essential. The societies sometimes chose their church because of their patron, as in the case of the Bolsani. And remember, if you don't show up for mass, you get kicked out, lose your vote, and can't serve in the militia. This group came from the area around Santo Stefano, but decided to meet in the church of San Giovanni in Monte, which is a lovely church, by the way, uh, because they preferred St. John's pilgrimage, patronage. Other societies whose pa chose patrons different from their home chapel, the Aquila, whose church was San Salvatore, chose Saints Peter and Paul. As an associative principle, the place and patron were secondary to the act of worship. One of the oldest Bolognese society statutes, that of the Traverse di, Porta, uh, di Porta San Procolo, was not originally localized in any parish church. The meetings moved monthly from neighborhood chapel to neighborhood chapel. The Traverse later adopted St. Procolo as their patron uh, and moved to his church. The members' monthly mass and their annual candle offering established the city's corporate identity. In extant Bologna city society statutes, the monthly mass held on the first or second Sunday of the month was constitutive of membership. All provided a stipend for the priest, usually stipulated at six pence Bolognese. If necessary, because of the numbers present, mass could be sung out of doors using the society's military tents. Societies fined those who failed to attend the mass. 12 pence Bolognese was typical, and even expelled regular absentees from membership. Society policing of attendance at religious exercises was not unique to Bologna. At Florence in the 1280s, 
during processions of the Society of St. Mary of the Cotamine. Its captain stood on a raised dais and checked off uh, those present on the society roll. Bolognese statutes usually specified that the priest chant a particular votive mass, commonly that of the city patron or the Blessed Virgin, a common co-patron. Like Society of St. Eustace, all societies shared blessed bread at the community at the monthly mass. Their statutes usually specified its quality and value, some usually between seven pence and 15 pence Bolognese. The event that defined the society as a corporate entity was the annual candle offering. Uh, I once read a paper on this uh, at Leeds called Beeswax and Candle Power. I'm going to borrow from it. The Bolognese popolo as a whole observed this practice. Government officials, Anziani, came as a group and each offered a one-pound wax candle to St. John the Baptist in the church of San Giovanni in Monte on 24 June, the Saint's Nativity. The popolo was a neighborhood society writ large. The societies typically offered four one-pound candles of fine wax, two for use at the society mass, and two as a votive gift to the chapel. Some societies offered as few as two candles, some as many as six. The Barbaria, which met in two different churches, had two annual candle ceremonies, one offering of two tapers to St. Isaiah at his church, and another offering of two to St. Barbatianus at his. The society's officials, the ministers, treasurers, standard bearer, as representatives of the membership, presented the candles during the mass of the patron saint. In others, such as the Lombardi, each member offered an individual candle once a year. The Lombardi's ministers organized the ritual on Pentecost, and the total candle costs were 12 shillings Bolognese, and then provided a banquet dinner, party time. Societies added other devotions according to their own tastes. Typical was an offering of oil to light the vigil lamp before the patron's altar. Social functions were important for creating fraternity in the societies, but they did not create a group's corporate identity. Only two societies mandated annual dinners in their statutes. When the members broke bread together, they, were not, they normally did so in the sacralized sharing of the benedizione, the blessed bread after mass. Typically, corporate meals were linked to members' funerals, Societies paid for the poor brothers' obsequies, lest any lack suffrages, prayers, and the dignity of Christian burial. Summoned by the society messenger, members attended the deceased's requiem mass at the society chapel. The ministers then assigned pallbearers to the procession to the cemetery. Afterward, pious duties completed, the society retired to their common dinner. The religious ethos of the Bologna Anani statute stands in strange contrast to that of the city's professional guilds, the Societa delle Arti. These guilds represented later secularization of the original forms, and notoriously, they, not the earlier religious organizations, will dominate the oligarchic communes and aristocratic despotisms of the so-called Renaissance. Their legislation shares the same external forms as the Otomi. They have chapels, monthly masses, blessed bread, candle offerings, and funeral provisions, but no fines punish absences, even at funerals. When the arts legislate on the Benedizione, their concerns seem almost profane. The carpenters carefully specified the two focaccias made with saffron and cumin valued at, valued at two shillings, 14 pence Bolognese are to be provided. Perhaps a tasty snack brought out better attendance than fines, but I doubt it. The art statutes did prohibit work on holy days, but, day, but days of closure were so numerous and also included non-religious observances like May Day, the religious purposes seemed lost or much demoted. What are we to make of this difference? It cannot be a mere accident. The guilds did not reflect a more secularized segment of society in any measurable sense. These organizations were hardly restricted to the well-to-do, even if the rich were less pious than the poor, a dubious assumption. Their matricula show membership numbers equally or exceeding those of the Adani. Nor does their economic nature as professional or craft associations help suffice to explain this. The winemaking corporation of St. Eustace was just as religious in flavor as the Otomi and probably more a business contrivance than any of the arts societies. In contrast, and very tellingly, if we turn to Pisa, where professional guilds alone composed the Popolo, 
The late fragments of their statutes have the same intensely religious flavor as those of the Bolognese army. At Padua, where the Frataliers were again craft-oriented, but again the sole corporations of the Popolo, the feel of a religious confraternity is again marked. Could the explanation lie in the army's particular role in Bolognese communal life? They formed the militia. The militia was the city's strong arm, but also its spiritual heart. The army, not the arts, defended the Ecclesia Matrix, the Caraccio, San Patronio, and his city. The craft guilds at Padua and Parma had the same defensive task. They formed the militia. They, with the help of the city's patrons, defended the city in battle, and so shared the city's sacred character. Their statutes, too, reflect their simultaneously religious and civic nature, unlike the Archie of Bologna. Nowhere is the simultaneous civic religious nature of the communes more evident than in the central civic and religious event of the liturgical year, the mass of baptism on the com of the commune's babies at Easter. But to that, I will have to return in the next Lecture. Yes, brother. Thank you, Father. I'm thinking of the kind of 20th century enthusiasm for, for the lay apostolate in the church, and I'm actually wondering if, if you could say something about your own clear enthusiasm for kind of urban republicanism and in the medieval communes, and if, if that's somehow instructive for... Gee, I'm not a political scientist. Uh, I like the idea of people being involved in their own government. I'm an American, and uh, the participatory nature of the Italian communes is unique before the time, before the late 18th century. Um, I'm not a fan of monarchy. I'm a small Republican myself. Um, my family were actually Jacobites, so I did, I did say a prayer for the Hanoverian claimant on her 70th anniversary, <laughs> having to be living in Canada where she's the sovereign. But so it's a combination of affection for the people I was studying and my own uh, proclivities about politics. Uh, I would like to see the suggestion I give to those who today are Christian and interested in politics uh, is that they should be aware that uh, popular democratic involvement is something that is at least in Western history, first witnessed in a profoundly religious society, and that uh, free association is the origins of that society. So what I'm saying is that uh, the citizens can legislate morality, but the government can't. Yes? Um, on the, on the um, between the secular non-religious activity armies and the religious uh, parallels. Um, is it possible that there's an overlap between the people who are in the armies and the people who are in the groups that are taking religious activity? The, the army is made up of religious groups. Yeah. And the neighborhood associations are religious groups. There is no difference. The guilds, I mean. Oh, you mean the, uh, the guilds, of course, have the trappings of religious groups? Yes. Uh, and they, they sound exactly the same. The difference for me is it's not compulsory. But is, is uh, it? it seems to me more formal. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the cities where the guilds made up the army, uh, they, they are just as religious as the army of Bologna. My argument is if the guilds are the city militia, they're religious. Is it possible that the, um, when they're not religious, the people who are in the guilds are in Yes. The other religious groups yes, as well. Uh, That's why. Uh, yeah, uh, you're, by being a member of the guild is not going to get, out, get you out of serving in the militia. Okay. Uh, but then you'd be a member of whatever was the group that made up the militia. Okay. And remember, in some cities, it was the craft associations that made up the militia. Oh my. One, two, three. And well, I guess just to follow up on both questions. Um, do you see a relevance today of guilds? Uh, the economics of post-capitalist society is so different from the mercantile society of Italy. Italy is capitalist in the sense that it has a mercantile, it has a money economy. Uh, in fact, they invented most of the stuff that we think of as being capitalist. Uh, but mass corporations of the kind we have 
uh, the bureaucratic aspects of government that's not participatory. Uh, this is a very different world, and I'm not a political scientist, so I can just tell you about it. Okay, we have a hand here and then a hand here. Yes, with, with any of the changes in forms of government or particular uh, uprisings, such as throwing out the Dharamona family, was there any contemporary abstract theorizing about what constitutes a justified revolt? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, the, uh, the closest to uh, kind of speculation, a uh, kind of theorizing on this yeah. is Albertano Labrescia, sadly not, a, not, not edited, somewhat edited, but not translated into English. Uh, and then the one who is translated in a number of segments, who's a bit, who's late, he's for around the year 1300, Remigio de Girolami. But mostly what they write about is how to keep peace within the Republican structures. Uh, these cities were torn by faction. Uh, sadly, their factionalism, too many people were involved with too many different things, and they formed parties, and they chased their enemy out of town. So, uh, uh, so the coming of the, of the tyrants was partially a result of the internal uh, well, it's been called creative violence of the communes by Marquinhos. Question. Yeah, do you see there as being a connection between, I mean, sort of these, these booming, this booming communes and these popular organizations with what the burgeoning legal culture that's coming out of the, these same areas? Uh, yes and no. They borrow the stuff from the Bolognese jurists wholesale. Although the most influential is not a jurist, it's Bon Compagno Athene, who's a rhetorician who writes sort of do-it-yourself legal manuals. Uh, they use it opportunistically. The problem is that the Roman law, as it is revived, is, is considers uh, law to be a product of, the, of an absolute emperor, uh, and there's no participation at all. So what you've got is you've got a legal ideology for an autocratic monarchy. And that's not helpful if you're a Republican uh, participatory regime. Yes. Can I say both? Sure. Yeah, is there is there something you see there is Oh by the way, the canon law was much more useful for them. But there, I'm not gonna go into that today, so we don't have time. Is there something inherently Republican about this turn from legal studies towards rhetoric? Uh, no, it precedes the uh, popular conflict. It happens in their context. Uh, perhaps the great, the mo I'll say something about him tomorrow. Uh, the most famous product of these, uh, this, uh, this, these cities is Dante. Uh, and Florence was still a popular commune. His, uh, his party, uh, the Black Guelphs, got kicked out by the White Guelphs. And the fact that he was exiled in a committee, basically in a political struggle for who's going who's to dominate the legislature, uh, may turn him into an autocratic uh, imperialist. Uh, I have no respect for his political theory, although his poetry is wonderful. <laughs> yes? Um, I'm very interested in particularly the tax law during this period and the movement of money between various cities. Uh, Hyde seems to suggest like very kind of vaguely that these communes like formed and started to exist, collecting large amounts of money, and everyone seems to be okay with it including the Henrys and the Fredericks, the Emperor, and also the yeah, Pope. Yeah, because they're taking a wake off. Okay, yeah, because it seems suspicious of me. That's not how human nature should work. So uh, you just... Remember that the imperial administration was from the top down. The German Empire Emperor appointed directors, who were often bishops, because he appointed them. And they were tax-gathering entities. The interest of the German emperors is to get Italian money to pay Germans to fight other Germans and French. That makes sense. And then I have a follow-up question. Do you know... Um, what the kind of tax looked like in terms of bracketing or the progressive tax? Was it the, the, the uh, most wealthy paying uh, no. the tithe with the, the, uh, uh, tithes were 10%, <coughs> tithes are 10%, but those to the church, yeah. there were, of course, knockoffs on that. Uh, the um, Virtually all the taxes that are applied that exist in the communes are what we would call consumption taxes. It's okay. kind of taxes on purchases. Oh, there's no direct income tax. It's a sales tax, not It's like a, they're mostly something like a sales tax or uh, customs taxes, okay. which I've learned all about living in Canada and being in America. We have time for one more question. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Benjamin can catch me at the sound. Some of the readings we read from Professor Clemens is 
has this problem that a sacralized monarchy causes and it's running with the church. Does the sacralized popolo also have conflict with the church as no. such? The remarkable thing is that there's so little conflict. People like Hyde and the whole older tradition that wanted to turn the communes into the origin of secular Republican democracies. They were desperate for a usable past in the 19th century to create a new Italy uh, that was going to be modern and united. Uh, uh, they emphasized every, for example, the four pages in uh, Jones's book uh, on religion concern one conflict between the commune and the law and the bishop of Florence. That's all it's about. They emphasize what's really secondary importance. Uh, the, as I've emphasized in my lecture, the bishop, the church, the, the, the ecclesiomatrix, and the commune got along pretty well. They divided up responsibilities in some surprising ways if you're a Gregorian reformer, where, you know, the idea that the bishop's going to turn over priests to the state uh, who are knifing people to the city court is a, comes as a shock. And then they just speak it along. We're all part of the same city. You do your job, I'll do my job, and I'll help you do it. Thank you.